This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Nathan Rubin, founder of Millennial Politics, and Pete Buttigieg, mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and current Democratic presidential candidate. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, Mayor Pete, we're super excited to have you here. Um, Let's go ahead and just dive right in. So there are a lot of Democrats running for president right now, many of them with very similar pitches to yours. What makes you so different? Well, I'm definitely the only millennial Midwestern mayor in the picture. And and I think that's uh, important, first of all, to have people from a new generation that has the skin in the game of somebody who's planning to be here in 2054 when I get to the current age of the current president. You know, the generation that lived through school shootings and put forward the troops for the post 9-11 wars and uh, is is facing mountains of student debt and, and, and has to live with the consequences of today's climate policy. I think that's a generation that needs to be putting forward far more leaders. We've seen it happen in the Congress, and it's a good thing. Uh, now it's time to make sure that happens on the national stage, too. I also think there's value in uh, coming from a part of the country that uh, maybe our party, to its regret, overlooked in previous elections, and from a different level of government. And I get that it's more conventional to come from a place like the U.S. Congress, but I also think the more we can get the Congress to look like uh, the best run cities and towns in the country and study the other way around, the, the better off we'd be. And so uh, I think the perspective of uh, executive leadership, really in a city of any size, where you were on the hook for getting results and getting stuff done, uh, I think that's a perspective that belongs in the conversation more, uh, especially the national conversation at a moment that, uh, you know, clearly we can't just keep doing what we've been doing uh, politically or in terms of policy. Awesome. No, I can definitely appreciate that. And uh, to give you a little bit of personal background, both sides of my family are actually from South Bend. So I grew up visiting South Bend and Mishawaka and hearing stories about the old Studebaker factory. My my dad grew up on Manchester Drive and McKinley Terrace. My mom grew up on Winston Drive. Both my parents graduated from John Adams High School. So like we have these strong ties to the community. All this to say South Bend holds a special place in my heart, and I've seen firsthand the empty industrial parts, the empty warehouses, but you've really tried to turn around South Bend from that blue-collar and industrial uh, city of the old economy into something that's new. So, can you tell our listeners, what did you learn through that economic redevelopment process? How can you take those learnings from your tenure as mayor and if elected president, apply them more broadly across the United States? Yeah, so I think it's one of the central questions for America right now. And as you know, South Bend captures uh, so many of the different issues that are at stake, especially when we talk about the future of the industrial Midwest, but but also a lot of other communities, even rural communities, uh, that are trying to figure out what their future is going to look like. We had to confront the fact that our future was going to be different than our past, that we were never going to go back to the days when we were making Studebakers in our city. And and that was not a, a, about rejecting our past. It wasn't that we had to 
say goodbye to all manufacturing forever. It was just acknowledging that things were going to change. And in many ways, I think uh, generationally, I was at an advantage because, you know, we were born uh, so long after the Studebaker heyday that we didn't have that same nostalgia for the way things were. We, we just, you know, we never saw those factories up and running. We only saw them as these kind of empty ruins. And I think if we ever had seen them up and running, we probably would have been, uh, would have had a hard time thinking of anything but bringing back that, that heyday. And that's what I see happening nationally. You know, this, this theme that we're getting from the current White House, to me, you just cannot have an honest politics that revolves around the word again. You have to recognize that the future will be different. You have to put people at ease as much as possible uh, with with the, the nature of, of that uh, future full of change and, and make people feel that they have a role in that, that future economy. So you have a pretty incredible resume. You're a Rhodes Scholar. You're a mayor. You are also a veteran. I believe you actually served in Afghanistan after you had been elected mayor. What did that experience teach you about politics? Well, for one thing, it was a reminder of why the very basics of government are so important. So, you know, inevitably, even though my job was uh, was that of a lieutenant in the military, I, I kind of saw things through the eyes of a mayor too. Part of my job was to drive uh, in convoy and vehicle movements outside the wire. I did I did more than a hundred of those um, to get my commander or. Uh, fellow members of my unit or sometimes a piece of equipment from point A to point B. And the majority of those missions were just in and around the city of Kabul, getting from one part of the city to another. What you learn in a place like that is not just the challenges of operating in a war zone, but uh, also what happens when uh, a community does not have the kind of basic services that uh, a place like South Bend takes for granted, uh, you know, trash pickup. When you don't have trash pickup, you have kids and sometimes goats uh, picking through trash that's piled up on the side of the road. When you don't have uh, basic safety and security, obviously life is very different. People are less free. Uh, even things like animal control, that you don't think about that much. Uh, you know, animal control means that you don't have to deal with things like uh, packs of do- uh, dogs in the street, which uh, I would have to swerve around in downtown Kabul as a driver. So I, I came away with a great appreciation for uh, the, the work that government quietly does to make people more free uh, by taking care of the basis. The other thing I, I really came to appreciate was the need for getting, uh, coming to trust people who are radically different from you. You know, when somebody got into my vehicle, they didn't care whether I, I was going home to a girlfriend or a boyfriend or, or what my politics were or what, what country my father immigrated from. They just needed to know that I knew how to do my job. And uh, I think at a moment when Americans are having trouble seeing and respecting and trusting each other, uh, it really set me to reflecting about what other ways there could be to build that same kind of trust and and respect among different people. Because uh, I believe you shouldn't have to go to war in order to have experiences that, that bind you to fellow Americans. And if elected, you would be America's first openly gay president. I think that means a lot to people in our community as we're seeing all of these attacks from the federal government, as well as watching the federal government not protect our community from attacks by state and local government, what would that historic milestone mean to you? Well, uh, you know, I, I think about it in two different ways. It, you know, on one hand, part of how I think about it is that we're moving toward a world where someday it, it wouldn't be significant. Right? I, I, I resented a little bit the fact that 
I had to come out because straight people don't have to come out. And why should the rest of us? I would have loved to be able to uh, simply go about my life and my career without it having to be a thing. But we're a long way from that, especially in places like Indiana. You know, Mike Pence was still the governor when I did decide to come out. And, and we had to deal with all of the complications of, uh, of doing that in, in a community like this. Um, I'm also very mindful of, of the historic character of a candidacy like this. Uh, and my, my main hope is that it just makes it easier for the next person who comes along. Because uh, on one hand, we've seen you know tremendous openings and, and tremendous moves toward acceptance for the LGBTQ community. On the other hand, you know, just because marriage equality is the law of the land doesn't mean people really enjoy full equality. We don't have a federal equality act yet, which means in many parts of the U.S. you can be fired just for who you are. We, um, we see these craven attacks on trans service members and even trans high schoolers, uh, coming out of the White House that I think is, is characteristic of the, uh, the kind of bullying mentality you see there. And so it's, it's an indication that, that this community really does have a long way to go in the struggle for equality. And I want to be there, even if it's simply by uh, representing the community uh, on a debate stage or someday in office, um, as I do from, from my local office, uh, that uh, they can make things just a little bit easier. And I think you're jumping right into this. What are your top legislative priorities and policy issues? Well, the framework that, that I carry with me is, is freedom, democracy, and security. And there are a lot of issues and, and commitments as you unpack that, that that I think need bolder action. Uh, on one hand, I try not to leap straight into the policy conversation because I think Democrats have done that sometimes before working on the battle of ideas and values. I think conservatives have been more attentive to winning the battle of ideas. And it's one of the reasons why we've seen, uh, because of their some of their victories in the idea space, we've seen even Democratic presidents doing what I would consider to be conservative things. That being said, I think uh, when you really look at freedom, democracy, and security for what they mean when you unpack them, they lead you to some pretty specific places in terms of policy. For example, uh, I think that you can't be free if you uh, don't know where your health care is going to come from or if uh, somebody's telling you who to marry, uh, or uh, uh, if women can't make their reproductive uh, health care decisions. So, you know, we need to think about freedom, not just as the freedom from this or that government regulation or tax, but really the kinds of freedoms that make it possible for Americans to live lives of our choosing. Uh, similarly with democracy, I think it requires very bold action. And, and if we really want to continue to claim that we live in a democracy, that means dealing with not just things like money in politics and redistricting that we all know are so important, but also asking ourselves whether we're content to continue to live uh, in a country where fellow U.S. citizens in places like Puerto Rico or D.C. don't have full uh, political representation and call that a, a democratic society. Uh, we need to ask ourselves uh, whether the Electoral College uh, has uh, has outlived its usefulness and certainly I think that's another generational perspective because, uh, you know, it, it's been twice in my short lifetime that the Electoral College has overruled the American people, and I don't think that was to our benefit. And then, lastly, security, which I think, uh, you know, in the 21st century is just going to look a little different than 20th century security. Certainly, things we used to worry about still matter. Counterterrorism, which is my specialty in the military, uh, security between countries, even border security. Uh, deserve attention. But what about cybersecurity? What about election security? And, and what about climate security? Because we really do have to begin treating uh, climate like the security issue that it is, especially as it's beginning to 
claim more and more American lives in the form of extreme weather events with uh, with rising casualty totals. And so you take all of these things together, freedom, democracy, and security, and while on their own, each one of those words sounds like just a platitude that nobody could be against, uh, when we start taking them seriously, we begin to realize that the most pragmatic outlook uh, for how to secure those those three goals really points you in a progressive direction. I think what you're saying about values really resonates with millennials, and it's a conversation we're seeing change within the Democratic Party. Candidates nowadays need to do more than just list a grab bag of policies. They need to offer an alternative vision for a better America. Now, you've quite astutely stated before that socialism is no longer the effective boogeyman it used to be, and the numbers back you up. Millennials and Democrats now prefer socialism to capitalism. Do you identify with democratic socialism, which asserts, according to the DSA, quote, both the economy and society should be run democratically to meet public needs, not to make profits for a few? Yeah, my belief is that uh, we can't have a healthy business community or any of the benefits of capitalism unless we first make sure uh, that we're a society of laws, where, where the rule of law comes first. And one of the points I've been making, especially on the cable TV circuit, uh, is that, you know, this may look one way to you if you came up in a generation where socialism meant communism and those two things were the opposite of, of democracy and capitalism. To me, we're, we're viewing all of these things as distinct. And there are actually a lot of points of tension between democracy and capitalism, especially if you can uh, use wealth in our democracy uh, to assert power so that uh, some, some citizens are more equal than others. So, you know, these, these labels in, in many ways have less usefulness than ever. Uh, and I think the fact that some people have just embraced the labels around socialism frees us up to make it, instead of kind of a kill switch on putting forward a good idea, uh, it makes it, uh, you know, the, the beginning of a conversation about whether that idea actually makes sense. And look, we've seen even conservative ideas labeled as socialists by the far right. And a good example being the Affordable Care Act, which is a very incremental, and I would say very uh, successful approach on healthcare, although I think we need to do more, and that's why I've aligned myself with the, um, the push to get Medicare for all. Um, so, you know, the, the, the name calling has kind of gotten out ahead of the substance, and in many ways it makes it that much harder to have a serious conversation, but I'm glad that uh, we're returning back to the simple question of whether any given idea uh, is going to make people better off or worse off, uh, rather than obsessing over what label might attach to. So, Mayor Pete, you, you just mentioned Medicare for All. Can you go a little bit more in depth on what your position is on healthcare? Yeah. So, the way I, I believe we uh, prepare the road for Medicare for All, because it's not something you can easily do overnight. The way I think we do it is we need to take a version of Medicare, make it available for buy-in on the exchange as a kind of public option. Uh, we believe that, I believe that, uh, you know, Medicare has some of the better um, mechanisms for controlling healthcare costs. It still needs some internal work in order to really be as efficient as it could be. But, but fundamentally, uh, I think that Medicare, uh, as a model is capable of delivering quality healthcare for everyone. So if people like me are right, then when we put it up there as an option on the exchange, uh, more and more people are going to be drawn to it because it's going to be a better solution for most Americans. As that happens, what you'll have then is a very natural glide path. Uh, toward a Medicare for all setup where you really uh, have a single payer for uh, people's core healthcare needs. If there's some ancillary private market, the same way you see even in a socialized Medicare or socialized healthcare system like England, 
uh, or as uh, you know something that parallels the add-ons that exist to Medicare itself um, for older residents in the U.S. That's fine, but I just don't think we can trust uh, the corporate system to take care of most people's healthcare needs most of the time. So, so just to confirm. The idea or theory of Medicare for all is somewhere that you think we should try to get to, but to get there, we would need some sort of public option to lead us down that road. That's right. I think anybody who believes, as I do, that Medicare for all is the right answer has a responsibility also to describe a transition that's not going to be simple. And so, uh, you know, my version, you might call it Medicare for all who want it, is my answer to that question of how you bridge from where we are today to where we hope to go. So now I want to transition a little bit and talk about foreign policy. Uh, you know, a couple of questions ago, you were talking about what does the future of security look like, whether that's cybersecurity, election security, climate security. Um, we are already starting to see the effects of climate change, whether that's, uh, like you said, extreme weather events or drought um, or increased human migration even. Now, the presidency itself um, largely has the most power in terms of foreign affairs and foreign policy. How would you describe your foreign policy and how would you approach the world as it is right now? Well, to put it in a nutshell, I would say that American foreign policy needs to begin with a, a higher bar for where we're willing to use American force. And I think that has to be grounded in core American interests. I think every decision we make uh, in foreign relations needs to rest on American interests, but then also be tested uh, for compatibility with American values. Uh, I think something that, that goes against American values actually can't be in the American interest in the long term, because one of the things that protected my safety when I was deployed overseas in uniform was not just my, my body armor or my weaponry, but uh, the idea of American moral authority, the fact that there are simply more people in the world, or at least there used to be, uh, who respected America and wish they could be Americans uh, than not. Uh, if we lose that, then I think we lose everything else with it. And so American interests need to be matched to American values. And then they need to be uh, vetted whenever we responsibly can with American allies, because the, the biggest downside to the so-called America first approach that, that we're getting out of the White House right now is that it winds up amounting to America alone. You can see it in the isolation of the U.S. at the Munich Security Conference, which is part of a security framework that America itself helped to create, only to find uh, more and more now that we almost have our nose pressed up against the glass looking in uh, to a community of nations that no longer feels that it can trust us. Uh, we've got to put that right very quickly. And that means uh, reasserting our commitment to human rights, um, as well as making sure that uh, America demonstrates its commitment to being part of a, a, a larger world that, that we can either resent the rest of the world or we can lead it, but, but we can't do both. I believe in American values. I believe in the American model. I believe in a moment when a lot of competing models, whether it's the Chinese model or the Russian model or the Saudi model or the Venezuelan model, as, as those are, are on offer, it's that much more important for us to demonstrate uh, a different way, a better way. And, uh, you know, for us to have any moral authority as we do that, we've got to make sure that we are walking the walk of American values and not just assuming that everybody will believe in, um, in our righteousness uh, when, uh, when we're not prepared to back that up. So I'm glad you brought up Venezuela because 
the U.S. is currently promoting regime change there. There's a coalition of Western nations and entities recognizing Juan Guaido as the interim president. Our listeners may be wondering, who is Juan Guaido? And that's a question the people of Venezuela were asking as well. Prior to declaring power, Guaido was actually almost entirely unknown in Venezuela. He's the leader of the National Assembly because of a power-sharing agreement within the opposition parties. He's the leader of the fourth largest opposition party, which just rotated into power. Though the opposition is calling this a constitutional coup, Article 233 of the Venezuelan Constitution outlines the conditions by which a president is ineligible to serve, and Maduro does not match them, even if he did the line of succession clearly places the vice president next. Now, U.S. officials have been perhaps shockingly candid about their motivation here. National Security Advisor John Bolton and U.S. Senator Marco Rubio have admitted that they're seeking oil. Juan Guaido has been quite open that he has one of his top priorities as denationalizing industries and opening oil up to private investors. While Donald Trump said this week at a Florida rally that taking down the government is part of a larger ploy to destroy socialism. Additionally, the UN and Red Cross are currently criticizing the US for politicizing and militarizing humanitarian aid, which is an important note given that the US imposed sanctions that UN human rights expert Idris Jazari, as well as Alfred Desaias, the first UN rapporteur to visit Venezuela in over two decades, say are starving Venezuelans and amount to economic warfare, quote, comparable with medieval sieges of towns. How would you, as president, approach this crisis? Well, if I were Venezuelan, I would not want to live under the Maduro regime. Uh, But I'm not Venezuelan. And so I think uh, it's one thing for the U.S. to have a preference uh, over what happens in that country, as we do with just about every country. There are better and there are worse outcomes from our perspective uh, when it comes to what's going on in other states. What I'm really disturbed to see from the White House, especially uh, from the National Security Advisor, Mr. Bol- Bolton, is the kind of saber rattling that, that seems to suggest that we would even contemplate a military force in order to get our way, uh, as if we hadn't learned from things like the Iraq War, in which, by the way, John Bolton played a major part, uh, that uh, simply uh, uh, trying to execute regime change in other countries by force with the commitment of U.S. troops is exactly the wrong direction for U.S. policy to go. I think that sanctions can have a legitimate role if they are targeted for the purpose of bringing about legitimate elections, because I do believe that the Maduro regime has sacrificed its legitimacy. But at the end of the day, this has to be uh, something that the Venezuelan people uh, can resolve. And uh, I think that the international community, as it often does when it sees human rights violations, can uh, try to uh, do what it can to call for those elections to happen. But um, those elections aren't for us to impose. Uh, they need to take place uh, in the context of self-determination for the Venezuelan people. I want to talk a little bit about big, bold ideas and kind of procedural process. When we look over the last five, seven, ten years, um, Republicans have really taken some unprecedented action, whether it was blocking President Obama's uh, pick for the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland. Um, some may call it stealing that seat. Um, reducing the filibuster, things of that nature, really uh, placing in in rapid form uh, Trump-appointed judges to the federal judiciary 
What is your stance on some people saying enough is enough, Democrats need to play hardball, and perhaps they should consider packing the courts, nuking the filibuster, and taking more aggressive action to protect our democracy in our eyes? In the past, it's been hard to rally people around process reforms because process isn't considered sexy. But I think we've learned from all of the different ways in which our democracy has been eroded that we're going to have trouble dealing with any issue unless we shore up our democracy. And again, that's true of things like Citizens United that has uh, basically established as a matter of American case law that dollars can outvote people uh, and might not be fixable without a constitutional amendment, which means we have to think about constitutional action. It's true of redistricting, which wouldn't require a constitutional amendment necessarily, but does need to be acted on uh, at the national level um, in order, I think, for us to, to get very far in having fairer districts. And it's true of uh, political representation. Think about uh, the rules of the Senate, and it, it's clear that uh, the, the Republican majority in the Senate uh, will stop at nothing in order to gain power. The question for us is, uh, how do we make sure that we are not being taken advantage of especially given our own, that our own sense of sort of fair play has come to bite us from time to time, and at the same time not turn into the thing that we oppose. To me, all options need to be on the table, including uh, reconsidering the filibuster and uh, even considering the composition of the Supreme Court, which, by the way, is not set by the Constitution. Um, uh, I think that that would be a, a very strong action to take, um, but you could certainly argue that that's no more a, a shattering of norms uh, than what the Republican majority has already done uh, and the efforts that it uh, took to uh, prevent uh, an up or down vote on a, a nominee simply because he was nominated by a Democratic president. Uh, and, you know, it's clear that fair play is not very important to that Senate majority. Uh, we've got to really uh, be ready to fight fire with fire. Uh, again, stopping short of doing anything we think is uh, bad for the country or not ethical. Um, but still giving ourselves enough room for maneuver that we can actually respond to these kinds of provocations and make sure that there's a fairer outcome in the Senate. And of course, immigration is one of the nation's top issues. You obviously oppose the border wall and separating asylum-seeking families at the border, but it's important to recognize that this isn't just a Trump problem. It was Barack Obama who deported more undocumented Americans than any other president, and nearly all other presidents combined it was not Trump, but the Chinese Exclusion Act that criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. And right now, a large portion of congressional Democrats are supporting what they call a smart wall, which consists of border fencing, increased militarization, and heightened technological surveillance, which has proven to target people of color, and all of which still upholds the racist idea that we need to stop brown people from entering through the U.S.-Mexico border. What is your vision for immigration, and does it include decriminalizing movement and migration? Well, you know, I'm here because of immigration. Uh, my city was uh, built by immigrants, as was uh, uh, most of our country. Uh, and at the same time, I also uh, think it's important that we support uh, a process, like the process that my father went through, uh, in order to become an American citizen. Uh, the big problem we have is that uh, we've gone uh, decades without a comprehensive immigration reform package. I don't think uh, anyone is arguing that we shouldn't have a border or that uh, a border shouldn't be secured in some way. But I think a common sense position recognizes that there's more to border security than, than a wall from sea to shining sea, and that even if you put one up, it doesn't really resolve 
uh, what people are supposed to do, especially dreamers in this country, people who are every bit, bit as American as the rest of us. They just don't have the paperwork to show it because they were brought here as children. Uh, I think that there's enough political will among the American people to have uh, a solution that uh, protects the ability of dreamers to be in the country that they know, the U.S., and be on a path to citizenship. Uh, I also think that uh, this could be part of a, a sensible um, bipartisan agreement. But, you know, the last time we had a sensible bipartisan agreement, uh, it was in the form of a, a bill, I believe, in 2006 that went through the Senate but got nowhere in the House. And we have to stop uh, the lives of, of immigrants from being a political football. We also have to ask whether uh, the opposition or, or the, the majority in the case of the Senate are serious when they say that they support legal immigration, because if they actually do, then there's some steps that they could take to make that less onerous, um, as opposed to some indications that um, there's a desire simply to see uh, fewer people who are different uh, making their way over the border. When, you know, American history is full of um, other outgroups who uh, were frankly not treated as, uh, as what you might call white, uh, from the Italians to the Irish to uh, groups immigrating now. Uh, but who made an incredibly important and incredibly positive impact on the American character. Immigration activists have been very vocal about what it meant in 2003 for immigration agencies to be moved from the Department of Justice to the Department of Homeland Security. What exactly should the federal government's role in immigration be? And where do you think that immigration agencies should be placed within the federal government? I'm actually not that interested in how the agency is placed administratively or bureaucratically, because I think the big problem we've had right now with immigration enforcement uh, is the orders that have been given to the agencies. So you could give it a different name, you could take it apart and put it back together, but if things like uh, family separation remain U.S. policy, uh, then it, no matter who's doing it, it's wrong. You know, we can revisit whether it makes sense for it to be part of DHS or any other part of the part of an administration, but I think first we have to ask what policies especially policies that, that seem to come from the whim of the White House, are fair, are moral, and what policies ought to be issued to, um, to whoever is in charge of making sure that, uh, that our border is safe. And of course, as you mentioned, this is an incredibly racialized issue. And this year, we're seeing candidates make bigger, more bold proposals in regards to racial justice. One I want to ask you about is reparations. In 2016, a UN panel declared that the U.S. owes reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans for the, quote, legacy of colonial history, enslavement, racial subordination, and segregation, racial terrorism, and racial inequality. University of Connecticut researcher Thomas Kramer estimated in a study published in Social Science Quarterly that the U.S. owes between $5.9 and $14.2 trillion in historical reparations, excluding the costs of post-Civil War thefts and lynchings, as well as more modernized manifestations of anti-Black racism. Do you support reparations? I don't know how you can fully account for or correct the uh, legacy and, uh, and frankly, the ongoing um, problems of racism and racial inequity. But, but what I know is that a good place to start would be to look at policy environments and, and areas of U.S. policy that have the greatest disproportionate impact. Uh, on uh, some racial groups relative to others. And we know that one of the first places to look is the criminal justice system. We've seen some uh, encouraging uh, early steps in terms of what's happening with federal uh, criminal justice and, and sentencing. Uh, 
form. But uh, we still know that uh, the social cost of incarceration and the racial disparity associated with it is enormous. And we need to be paying attention to the disparate impact of any criminal justice policy going forward. Uh, if we want to be able to move anywhere toward being a, a more just society. Likewise, I think when we're thinking about uh, our economic policies, when we're talking about earned income tax credit expansion, or even the debate that's beginning to emerge over guaranteed income, it needs to be looked at through the lens of addressing racial inequity, because we know uh, that some measures more than others uh, stand a chance of uh, doing something to uh, to confront the disparate impact of decision upon decision that's been made. I don't know that we can ever properly uh, implement a policy that could just wipe out what's what's been done because, uh, you know, as Faulkner said, that the past is never dead, it isn't even past. But those are the areas where I would bring that lens uh, to begin with in order to begin making some kind of progress. So, Mayor Pete, we, uh, we have one last question for you. Uh, we so appreciate your time and we know that you're incredibly busy if folks are inspired by you or want to get involved with your campaign, how can they find you? How can they help? Well, thanks. We need all the help we can get. I'm obviously, I don't have the gilded fundraising base of a, a, of a senator from a major state, and, uh, and I don't have the advantage of being famous at the beginning. So uh, we're looking for uh, supporters. It's as simple as going to PeteForAmerica.com, uh, entering an email. Uh, we also need uh, grassroots contributions if we're going to get anywhere here. We're not taking corporate PAC funds. And so uh, in order to meet the goal, especially as the, we're being told that to even get on the debate stage, we've got to have at least 65,000 people uh, contributing. Good news is it can be any amount. So it's not about getting the very biggest checks. It's just about anybody who believes in our message and, and believes in our project, uh, taking a moment to be counted among those supporters before the debate invites go out later on in the late spring, early summer. Uh, but check us out at p4america.com. Have a look on Twitter uh, and stay tuned for more from us in the in the near future. Awesome. Thanks so much. And for our listeners, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and follow us on social media at Millen Politics. And stay tuned for our next episode.